0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, I thank you for your mercies to us. They're new and they are kind, and I thank you for the way in which you've ministered to us this morning already in word and, and sacrament, and I pray that you will draw our hearts and our minds together even now as we look um, into your word. Thank you for this season of Thanksgiving that is a good reminder to us um, about what it really means fundamentally to be as followers of Jesus, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have if you have Bibles somewhere that you can hunt through... Um, I'm I'm going to fiddle today a little bit in Psalm 102, and I'm I'm doing this under direct um, order from my my wife, um, so I want to I want to sleep well tonight. <laughs> um, but we're in Psalm, Psalm 102, and just to put the car slightly in reverse, knowing that our time is limited, um, you'll recall that last week we began this three week. Series on praise, um, contextualizing it in two ways. Number one, contextualizing the significance of praise in light of what um, the early monks used to call the, the noonday demon, based based off of a reading of Psalm 91. That um, that in our English Bibles, we, we I think it says something like, "In the scourge that, um, and the heat that scourges you by day, or something like that." In Psalm 91. And this is translated into other translations as the noonday demon, uh, which began to become, a, I guess, a metaphor for many of the monks about a particular evil thought or temptation called acedia, um, which in a basic way, I think a basic definition of acedia is um, indifference. Um, it's, it would be the opposite of affection and the opposite of enthusiasm for our vocation. Um, what we're called to be and to do. And, and we all know, I think we talk, there's, there's a whole a slew of seats over here uh, for those looking. Um, we know a lot around, uh, we speak a lot at the Advent about Reformation doctrine and theology, especially as it pertains to our salvation. Um, the whole sermon that we heard today from Zach Hicks is, sort of sh- is shaped by this Reformation understanding of salvation um, as the announcement of God's mercy in light of our ineptitude. I mean, the, the tech, a, a term that I've, I've discovered recently that I really like is from uh, John Barclay, who describes God's grace in Romans as incongruous. Um, it's not in accord with, with the, uh, worthiness of the, of the recipient. It's the incongruity of grace. I think that's a beautiful phrase, actually. Um, and we talk about that a lot around here, but one of the things maybe we, we don't talk as much about um, is the fact that Martin Luther and, and and the whole sort of Reformation stream recovered a sense of vocation, um, calling for all Christians. I mean, all Christians are called to be something um, to the glory of God in this world, and this is where again that clergy laity distinction began to get rather blurry. It still was maintained, but it became somewhat blurry within the Reformation, and rightly so, because people are called to be um, teachers to the glory of God, um, or dentists to the glory of God, or businesswomen to the glory of God. I mean, all of that, that's our vocation. So that what we're doing Monday to Friday in our commerce and in our life together in the world, in the public sphere, think about this, in the secular sphere, is not in any way discordant with, um, what it means for us to be living light and light of God as our Lord and our Savior. So we're, we're called to be and to do those things well. Um, so this, this noonday demon, Asidia, I think is the, the, the danger of it is moving toward a place of some indifference and callousness toward what we're called to be in our vocation. And, and how we're called to relate to one another in loving relationships to where we can find ourselves in a place of, of indifference. And if you've, you've, you've heard me say this before, for those of you who have heard me teach, but, um, indifference is probably the, the better, um, I'm um, opposite of love than hate. I mean, when you think about love and hate, they're, they're really kind of on an interesting continuum, actually. At least if we think of hate and the, not necessarily murderous hate, but I'm talking about, you, you, you've really ticked me off. Um, the fact that people have the platform to really tick us off means that we're in some sort of relationship with them that matters, right? Um, it's when they can't tick you off anymore. Um, that I think that's when alarm bells began to sound on some level, um, because now we've moved to a place of indifference. So we talked about the ways in which, and again, we have to be very careful how we how we use these analogies. But the ways in which some of the church fathers would talk about this noonday demon and its antidote, um, the the spiritual pill that would be yeah. offered in the middle of this particular malaise, um, which meets us all at various moments in our lives, is is the pill of praise. And gratitude. Um, there, there, there was a there's a kind of notion of beginning every morning with what you what we would what we just did in church, the Sursum corda, um, Lord, I lift up my heart. We lift our hearts up to you, beginning the day with that recognition of our of our existence before Him. That that itself is a, is a kind of ameliorative. It's it's a it's a medicine. It's a salve. Um, to souls that are battling with, with acedia. Um, so the old hymn that I used to sing growing up was Count Your Many Blessings, Name Them One by One. Um, and even though that sounds a little bit cheesy, um, and, and not all, all that profound theologically, it's actually, um, for, for the sake of our souls and our internal well-being, central to health and what it means to be healthy in our relationship to others and to the Lord. Um then the, the the other side of this with the was the notion within the whole of the Bible and I think this is really a central biblical theological claim that the opposite of idolatry in the Bible is its its counterpoint is again thanksgiving. Um we see this in we saw this last week in Jonah chapter 2, right, where the, where Jonah is in the belly of the whale and Jonah prays and he says um I want to lift my voice of thanksgiving to you. But those who have turned toward worthless things, which is, which is Jonah's way of talking about idols, those who have turned to idols, um, they have forsaken their faithfulness of you. So what you see in Jonah chapter 2 is this very prophetic juxtaposition of the pursuit of idols being contrasted with thanksgiving and praise. Uh, gratitude. Um, and I think, if, again, sort of looking back to last week as we move into today, we recognize, with the, I think, the best of Saint Augustine and the tradition that he spawned, which is really, if, if you think about it, sort of a move, you have the Old Testament, you have Paul, then you have sort of Augustine reading Paul very well. You have Luther and Calvin reading Augustine, who's reading Paul very well. You see the sort of tradition and the central role that Saint Augustine in the fourth century plays for Christian thought. And Augustine helps us to know that we're creatures of desire. We, we've been made. Um, internally, to be worshiping people, We're, we are. Our affections are lit and animated towards something. Um, and so, I think the the point with this sort of juxtaposition of praise um, over against idolatry is a recognition that wherever the vacuum is, wherever the space is that exists for our call to be a worshiping people, it will be filled by something. And the activity of praise, which is, again, both in our lips and in our lives, the activity of praise is that good gift that God gives his people to fill that void with the proper thing, namely himself, in a recognition of who he is and, and, and his stability and his movement toward us and the, and the goodness that he's shown us in, in um, saving us and redeeming us. So with all that said, I wanted to look at Psalm 102 today with you. Um, because this is, this is the third feature. So if I'm thinking about these sort of, these, these, uh, uh, this coat rack that we're hanging ideas on, on the coat rack, the first one is this notion of asidia or the noonday demon and the antidote of it being thanksgiving and praise. The, the second one is a recognition that thanksgiving and idolatry are opposite the one to the other and antithetical the one to the other. And then the third feature that I want to talk about this morning in light of Psalm 102 is something that I really appreciate about the Bible. And that is the Bible recognizes that the activity of praise and thanksgiving is rooted and grounded in the reality of human existence. In the concrete reality of what it means to be a human. In all the difficulties that come along with humanity. In other words, and I'll have to tell you, and again, not to be overly autobiographical here, but I I went through a phase, and and I'm still recovering from this in some ways. I don't have my mind around it. Um, But I went through a phase when I was in college where I began to read a lot of the medieval mystics. I was just fascinated by them. Um, I I was actually on tour for college. I stayed in someone's home. Um, I saw that they had a book on their shelf by a guy named Gary Thomas entitled Seeking the Face of God, um, my the first theology book I ever read as an 18-year-old was J.I. Packer's Knowing God. You know, so these these knowing God, seeking the face of God, being intimate with God. What does it mean to be in personal communion with God? Uh, that which took me into the Puritans and John Owen's classic work on communion with God. Now, I I was wrestling with a lot of these issues about what it meant to seek God, and to be in communion with God. And what I don't, if I could go back to my 20-year-old self and talk to him, and by the way, I think my 20-year-old self would have things that he'd want to say to me too, by the way. Um, but if I could go and talk to my 20-year-old self, I think I would want to tell him, just beware and be and, and be conscious of the fact that to be in communion with God and to grow into that kind of deep intimacy with the Lord in your walk with Him um, is not a Buddhist enterprise. Because I think I really, and I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it this way in my early 20s, but I I do think that I was operating with, with, with a kind of Buddhist religiosity. And by the way, uh, Buddhism's kind of a nice thing on the corner market. I'll take some of that. I mean, um, not to be offensive here, but I mean the idea that you continue to kind of progress in some way, that you become detached from the problematic reality of what it means to be physical and human. <laughs> Sign me up, right? Um, and you'll see, by the way, in a lot of mystical Christianity, the convergence of Buddhist ideas with what it means to be um, in communion with God. And I would just want to say, be real careful here, um, because it's not the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible doesn't talk about... Um, being in communion with God as that kind of activity that in time allows you to detach yourself or transcend the problems that come along with human existence. And what do I mean by human existence? The fact that we are sinners and we will struggle to the day that we die with our sinfulness, and that sinfulness carries over to our relationships both vocationally and familiarly in the church. We We can't get out of that. We can't get out of what, and we're going to see this in Psalm 102, what the psalmist calls distress, right? Um, And and by the way, there there are some moments when our distress is more acute than others, but human existence is an existence of of distress. And when you even press back, like into Greco-Roman philosophy, think like the Epicureans or, or being stoic, there's this Deep um, need and and really amazing critical thought that's given to helping um, the best of humanity transcend those problems. How does one transcend the distress of being human? Well, what's the Epicurean notion? The Epicurean notion, which is a kind of kissing cousin of Stoicism, is... Well, you follow a kind of middle path that you don't overly attach yourself to the pleasures or the pains of this world so that they can't really touch you when you, when you either have too much pleasure or you have too much pain. You may maintain this kind of middle level equilibrium. I was with a faculty group years ago at Sanford and we read Cicero one summer. Um, and Cicero imbibed a great number of these Stoic ideals. Think Marcus Aurelius. In other words, you don't overly attach yourself by emotion or affection to anything in this world so that when pleasure or pain come, either one, you can maintain your own sense of self, stability, and security. And, and I remember reading in this summer reading group with the, with these folks from Sanford um, that was great until Cicero's daughter died suddenly, and caught them by surprise, and he was wrecked by it, absolutely wrecked. Um, we can't we can't transcend our distress. One of my favorite lines from John Calvin um, in the latter part of the Institutes is Calvin talking about what it means to be a Christian. And this is Calvin's terminology. There are those Christians out there that think that being truly Christian means to not grieve and and to sorrow in this world. And you know what Calvin says? He says, that's a kind... This is Calvin, not General imposing on him. Calvin says, that's a kind of Stoicism. It's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Because when we get into the Psalms, we cannot escape the fact that the Psalms put praise on our lips. I think this is crucial. Put praise in our lips, not by the transcending of our moment of distress. We don't praise because God has allowed us to get out of the deep end of the pool, and now now that's no longer touching you. You're no longer vulnerable to that. The sting's no longer there. So now you're free to praise me. Rather, the praise is put on the lips in the midst of the distress itself and the disorientation. That's a very concrete understanding of what I think it means to be human in this world and the fact that the Bible anticipates that. So that, that's my third peg on our three-week series together. I don't know what next week's peg is going to be, but that's today's peg. Today's peg is just thinking, I mean, to me, gratefully. That the life of praise and thanksgiving before the Lord is not one that helps us to transcend human existence, but helps us to navigate the realities of that human existence that we cannot transcend. So you want to hear how the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 102? And, and these were as I was looking at Psalm 102, these were the two terms that came, that came to mind for me kind of holding this psalm together. Um, so from our perspective, movement and friction... Movement and friction. You're going to see this. And then when we move to the middle part of the psalm that begins to describe God and His being and His transcendence, you have stability. So there's movement and friction. That describes us. That moves into stability. So can we look at Psalm 102 together here? Hear my prayer. Oh Lord, let my cry come to you, do not hide your face from me in the day of my zarah, my distress. I mean if you if you were doing in, in Hebrew Bible and you had your Hebrew Bibles open and were doing the K Arthur study Bible I don't know if any of you all did that back in the day, but all the different color things or whatever, so you're doing your inductive work and you wanted to do like what's a major thing I did this I did K Arthur when I was younger too uh, in high school and I can remember um, doing Colossians as my first book all. Of my yellow underlinings of in him in Colossians, right? So that then all of a sudden you see this yellow everywhere and realize, oh, that that must be a pretty important Pauline theme there in him. Well, <laughs> if you wanted to do a yellow underlining throughout the Psalms, it would be this word here, Zarah, distress. It's the same word that Jonah uses in Jonah chapter 2, I call to you from my distress. Psalm 77, I call to you from my distress. So this distress here is a signal indicator of the movement and the friction that exists by merely being human. What it just means to be human is to recognize that there will be moments, more acute at times than others, but moments of, of distress. So this is his moment. Um, Walter Brueggemann in his work on the psalms identified this aspect of lamentation as disorientation. The psalmist is disoriented now. In the day of distress, incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. Now, now we, we can get lost here, and no, I don't want to. But one thing that I do think is really, uh, and, and this, is, this is not stated as a propositional statement in the Psalms of lament in the Bible. In other words, you don't have a kind of rubric to the side where the psalmist is saying, see what I'm doing here, learn from this. But I think seeing what the psalmist is doing does help us to learn something. And that is, even in the distress and the frustration and the disorientation, the natural inclination, even when the speech might be risky, is to talk to God about it. In other words, it's not a move toward what we might call a practical atheism. Um, what it is, it's a it's a move toward admittedly a problematized theism, okay, but nevertheless it's a conversation that's going on between the psalmist and the Lord in the psalmist's distress. It's very honest. It's marked by candor. It's not clean at all. It's not in any way sedentary. Nevertheless, it reveals the nature and the complexity of what it means to be in relationship with God. In my distress, I'm praying to you, and you need to answer me quickly. That's what the psalmist is saying. So what do we go, what are the next few verses here? Heightened imagery. Which again, I think the, the psalmist uses heightened imagery often, a lot of metaphors to describe the emotive state of the psalmist. Metaphors allow us to pierce into reality in ways that just normal speech patterns don't. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose, right? Well, I mean, we can talk in an abstract way about what love is like, but when you begin to use metaphors, it allows you access to the substance in ways that you don't have without the metaphor. And what the psalmist is about to do for us here is to let us see through all these images in these next few verses what his distress is really like. In other words, we can again talk about this in abstracted, um, in abstract ways, of, uh, giving you some propositional statements about what it means to be in distress. Distress is A, it's B, it's C. It's another thing, though, for the psalmist to say, "But I'm like a bird in the wilderness." Right? That that gives you access to something that's emotive and real in ways that just propositional statements uh, don't. So, so look at verse three. Now we're going to get all these um, heightened images. For my days pass away like smoke. You hear this like language, right? The simile, the metaphor stuff. Like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. Now, I want you to tuck away verse 3. Because when we come to verse 11, you're going to see that verse 3 and verse 11 are forming the kind of bookends of what is at the heart of the psalmist's distress. My days are passing away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down. Here we go again. Here's the the similitude language. Like grass and has withered. I forgot to eat my bread. See the impact of this? I'm so overtaken by my grief and my distress that I can't eat. Many of you have seen, maybe you've experienced this, but have known a friend or a colleague that trauma has hit their home, and in a matter of two months, they've lost 25, 30 pounds. I mean, you've all seen this. Um, I've seen it, even in my own workplace. Someone whose body changed over two months um, because of of distress. I forgot to eat. If any of you have read C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, um, which is a really, that's a hard read. It's a particular genre of Christian writing, Um, but if you read *A Grief Observed*, you'll you'll hear Lewis, after his wife died of cancer, saying, talking about the simple activities of life that he couldn't do anymore, like I can't shave, Um, I'm not eating. Right? So you're getting there's something here about human experience, whether it's in the ancient Near Eastern world or C.S. Lewis in Oxford, England, in the 50s, where there's a there's a commonality here. I forgot to eat my bread. Why? Because I couldn't stop groaning. <laughs> my bones would cling to my flesh. And and these these verse six, these images are some of my favorite. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness. Like an owl of the waste places. I mean, there's so much going on in this metaphor. First of all, these birds that are in desert places are probably close to death. I mean, I think that's one of the images. To be a bird in the desert is to be in the wrong place, right? And these are also birds that would be unclean. They're, they're not. These, these are birds that are unclean from a ritual purity standpoint. In Israel's religious life, so he's 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 talking here both about I think his physical and his spiritual dimension right now. I'm I'm lost. I'm on the point. I'm on the brink of death internally, and um, I'm spiritually impure. My spirit is. Dist- I'm like an owl. This is this is something you could not bring for sacrifice. Um, So the the multiple metaphors here seem to be going in lots of different different directions, and what we're sensing as we press into these images is an understanding in the Psalms that differs a little bit for you and for me in the Western world now. Because we live on, I think, a tight distinction between the realm of the dead and the realm of the living. But in the world of the Psalms, the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, there's a blurry middle. That someone can actually be, even in their human existence and conscious and living and breathing, a moving being in this world, and still be more likely in the realm of Sheol, in the realm of the dead, than in the realm of the living. Um, and what you're seeing here, I think, for the psalmist with this bird imagery, is my worlds the world of death and the world of life are beginning to overlap for me in such a way that it's hard to distinguish when you look closely. Verse 7, I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the days my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. This is profound I and mean, this is this is hard. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Um So what do you have here? I think when you look at verse three and verse eleven, what is the acuteness, the the acute pang of distress that the psalmist is feeling? And I think it's multiple things. All right, so I don't want to reduce this here, but I think significantly we see one thing in, in particular: the psalmist recognizes that his days are fleeting, like a shadow, that's here and then it's gone. Um, isn't it, it's a beautiful images, and the shadows are starting to get long in the in the day of my life. Um, and I've lost a sense of purpose in my existence. I think I think this is a fair reading here. I've lost a sense of purpose, and I've lost a sense of normalcy in my life. I I don't think I I I feel this way now in my twenties. I would have thought this was boring, Um but now you know. Middle-aged, I'm grateful, really, for the normalcy of routine. Um, I I read Stanley Hauerwas' memoir several years ago called Hannah's Child, and Hauerwas was married to a woman that battled mental illness for years, um, and they had an only child... And she I think she ended up actually committing suicide. It's a very very hard story. Um and was describes married life with their child and the difficulties that they had with his wife and how to navigate this. And I'll never forget this, is that he said our schedule was our savior. And it was just we we knew that tomorrow morning we're gonna have breakfast. And then I'm gonna drop Adam off his son, I'm gonna drop him off to school. And then I'm going to go to work, and then that the normalcy of that day provided for him mental equilibrium in the difficulty of his life. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. The the gift of a schedule, right? Um, being Completely free and unencumbered—that's—I that, think—that's the pipe dream of the twenty-year-olds on their way to spring break. But that—that's not—it's not—it's not the way sort of to structure familial existence. I mean, none of us want that. My kids want it, but they're not going to get it. Um, so it's purposeless, All right. Now, uh, oh goodness, look at the time. But I want you to see that what happens here, and this is so beautiful. Again, notice. He doesn't get any transcendence. He doesn't get any removal. He doesn't uh, get to escape his body. But it's this reorientation in verse 12. And just so you all can be Hebrew scholars for the day, you can circle that word B U T in the Psalms. It's one of the most important. Dennis is in my Hebrew class. We just talked about this this week, didn't we, Dennis? The Vav disjunctive, all right? All of you can be in that class if you want to learn God's language. <laughs> um. Look at verse 12. And now we move from movement and friction to the picture of God and His stability. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. See, my life is like a shadow that's fleeting away. But you, O Lord, you're enthroned forever. Do you see the counterpoint here? The juxtaposition of these images? I'm moving, I'm friction, I'm a long shadow at the end of the day. But you, O Lord, you're enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. I'm like smoke here and gone. But in a hundred years, if the Lord hasn't returned, there'll be another generation praising Him. In two hundred years, there'll be another as well. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servant holds her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. A lot to talk about here, but the glory of the Lord is the salvation of His people before the nations. God likes to show off before all the nations by the saving of His own people. He does not despise their prayer. He, he regards the prayer of the destitute. That, that Verse 17, I mean, well, we just place that on some sort of inner recess of your heart. The God who's enthroned forever, who's marked by stability, there's nothing outside of him that causes him to be moved other than the internal compulsion of his own compassion. Um, He does not despise our prayers. He does not despise the words that come out of our mouth in the moment of distress. Um, We've made these sort of jokes in our home um, especially when our kids are, are were smaller, although really not even smaller. But why don't you know if if we could video what you're doing right now, like the tantrum that you're having, and you could see it, you'd be stunned to see what it is that you're doing right now, right? And then they're like, well, Daddy, if we could if we could video your tantrums, right, you might see the same thing. So fair enough, right? I get a two way street. Um, and and I I kind of feel like this reading this. You know, if 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 you could video us. And we could see ourselves, because we don't get to do that, right? We, we, other people get to, that's the embarrassing part, but we don't get to see ourselves in action and be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. How embarrassing. That's, that's why it's very hard for us to watch ourselves on video. It's like, I didn't know that I had that tick. I've got students apparently that do sort of mocking things about me in the hallways that I don't even know I do, right? <laughs> um, so, so I don't get to see all of that. And here, the Lord says, if I can, Oh, paraphrase this, or give you my own gloss on this. I get to see those videos of you all the time, all the time. I know it, I know how you act, and I remember who you are, um, and I want you to pray to me in those moments. I want to he- I want to be a part of those videos with you that are a little bit embarrassing if you could see them. I won't despise your prayers in those moments. It's a beautiful description, I think, of God's compassion toward us as his children. And this, look at verse 18. So we move here from God's stability, which is so profound. Um, and I really want to talk about that because in 20th century theology, um, the, the big move, especially on the far side of World War II and the horrors of what happened with the Holocaust, there was a big move to talk about um, God being uh, the suffering God. Right? Um, and we, we can talk about that at another time. But let me just say from the standpoint of where I think the psalmist would want us to go, now, that our, our hope is not found in the fact that God is a suffering God. I believe our hope is found in the fact that our God is stable, that our God sits on the throne and he endures forever. And in his stability, because in his stability, or don't think of this as detached stability, but in his, the pureness of God's being and his simplicity... He is marked by compassion and favor and goodwill to those who call on His name. That's who He is. And I want God to be stable, not fickle. I want God to be the one who sits on the throne and He endures forever. And that's where the psalmist, I think, takes us. And then look at verse 18. And we'll have to stop here in this little section. But look at verse 18. And why is this important? Let this be a record for the generations to come. That, by the way, is at the heart of why you have a Bible in your hands. The reason why the Bible exists is because of a verse like this. Um, And you see this verse, by the way, in Isaiah. You see see this verse all over the place. You see this verse at the end of Paul's writings to his letters like in Ephesians and Colossians. Hey, by the way, I wrote a letter um, to 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 the Laodiceans. Get your hands on that letter. You read it too. And you let them read the letter I just wrote you. I mean, Paul recognizes that his writings have the ability to kind of move and migrate into other communities of faith so that they could hear the apostolic word as well. And here you have the psalmist saying, this psalm here, let it be written down for future generations to read and encounter as well. Because future generations are going to be marked by the same distress that this generation is marked by. That, that's what I think is so profound here. Um, what it means to be human on a very sort of basic level um, living in the reality of fallen existence in our relationship to God, to others, and in relating to our own selves is something that marks humanity from, it, from, its, from after the fall until the, the new heavens and the new earth, until that day comes. Um, so this is the record for the generation to come. So that a people, and this is for our series together, so that a people yet to be created may do what? May praise the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Let this be a a record for generations to come because my grandchildren who are not yet here and your grandchildren or great-grandchildren who are not yet here, let them encounter Psalm 102 about 150 years from now so that they too can enter into praise, recognizing that God's promise of praise to them does not allow them to get a get-out-of-jail-free card for being human. But he does give him them himself, he gives his people himself in the middle of their distress to praise him and to hold on to his stability, which is marked by his loving kindness, even when our lives are marked by friction. Because look, look at verse 19, it's so beautiful. Because he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth. And what does he do when he looks down from his holy height? He hears the groan of those who are in bondage to set free those who are doomed to die. And why does He want to set them free? That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise. When peoples gather together in kingdoms to do what? To worship the Lord. Um, Our existence moves in its entirety toward praise and thanksgiving. And what's interesting is, in the movement toward praise and thanksgiving outside of ourselves, God in His kindness orders us inwardly as well. The internal castle that the mystics used to talk about is internally ordered and cleaned by the activity of praise where God pushes us beyond ourselves to praise Him and worship Him and recognize that the reality and the fullness and the joy of our being, and this is crucial, is external to ourselves and the one who's redeemed us. So Psalm 102 leads into psalm 103 i mean i think these are paired beautifully with one another and i can't do psalm 103 today because we're out of time Um, but read psalm 103 because you move from this this surprise about god and his stability his throne endures forever to what psalm 103 bless the lord O my soul all that is within me bless his holy name why because he doesn't forget his benefits well what are his benefits his benefits are that he's redeemed us and he's forgiven us of our sins so you move from this beautiful Psalm 102, God in His transcendence and His stability, and then Psalm 103 emphasizes God in His eminence in His relationship to us as the one who's redeemed us and forgiven us of our sins. Alright, so we'll turn to that maybe next week. We'll see. Lord bless us as we go our way. And thank you for a psalm like Psalm 102 that touches on so many different registers of what it means for us to be. And in this season of Thanksgiving... Um, even when we, even when we're in distress, and when it just doesn't seem like things are like they're supposed to be, this is like th- things seem off, askew. Um, draw us by your grace, O Lord, into praise. That even though our lives are marked by movement and friction, um, you are not. You are seated on your throne, O Lord. You are goodness and beauty. You are Lord, the truth that we are drawn into. And we can hold on to your stability, even in the instability of our own existence, trusting that you are moving us into that ultimate place in the new heavens and the new earth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.